having a chance to talk about my favorite subject, which is my my love of food, my sharing of food, my building of community with food. And it's happening again late in my life when I didn't really expect it. I thought I would just fade away. And now all of a sudden, um, this community is still there. And um, and, and I, I love it. It's been a very important part of my life. That is Patricia Bowerslate, the founder and owner of Austin's iconic Swedish Hill Bakery. For many years, Patricia fed the hearts of Austinites with her love for well-baked goods and specialty coffees. She is our guest on this pre-recorded episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour, next on Co-op. Welcome to KOOP 91.7 FM on your dial, and we come to you all over the world at koop.org. Welcome to another pre-recorded episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour here in Austin, Texas. And we've got Jane Pulaski as our host with me, John Hoffner, today. And Jane, I think we have a really exciting interview today with an icon of Austin. So tell us who our guest is and what we should expect. Yeah, talk about an icon, an Austin icon. Anyone who's been in Austin since 1975, you know what I'm talking about when I say bear claws, cakes, croissant, killer coffee. A Swedish hill founded in 1975 by Patricia Bauer Slate and partner Tom Newhouse was the bakery that introduced Austinites to the pleasures and joys of European style baked deliciousness. Wow, I'm already getting hungry. (laughs) It sounds really good. And that's what we're going to talk about today, right? We have uh, Patricia Powerslate in the studio with us for a pre-recorded interview. So welcome to the show. Thank you, John. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Flattered to be here. Well, thanks. Well, we're flattered to have you. And like I said, an icon. So Maybe uh, Jane will probably take it away and lead you through the interview, but uh, maybe start way back in your uh, childhood. Even when, when, if ever, did you decide that you would be a have a bakery in Austin, Texas? I did not know anything about Austin, Texas as a child. I grew up in Philadelphia. My grandfather, who lived in the next duplex over, was a professional baker and had a bakery. He died when I was seven, but I had gone to the bake, never forgot the experience of getting to go behind the bakery case and pick out what I wanted. And when I actually had my own business, I would occasionally, when I had time, I would be out front and see a child I didn't know and invite them to come behind the bakery case and pick out their own dessert. And that was a a lot of fun. He was a, a wonderful man. He started a bakery in uh, Philadelphia, and his wife had had uh, uh, had died. So he was living with one of his children next door to uh, my father and mother and us. And I was one of five children. I did not know anything about Texas. I did not know very much about <laughs> baking. I mm. I really always aspired to some kind of an intellectual. Uh, pursuit. Um, I was going to be a teacher, perhaps. And I wondered, I went later to the University of Pennsylvania in Philly. And I remember wondering a lot what I was going to do, because the end of college was going to happen. And I'd have to. Um, At the time, I thought the choice was to go on to grad school, which uh, having now moved to Austin to be near a sister, who had a second child on the way and needed help with the first, uh, I came to Austin and decided to finish up my few credits from the University of Pennsylvania at the University of Texas, where I met my future husband. So all of that leading up to now I'm in Austin. So now I know Austin. Now I love Austin. I love the fact that everybody smiles and talks to you on the street. Although (laughs) I remember the first time walking down the street, a postman stopped and said, hi. And I looked at him like, who are you talking to, buddy? You know, (laughs) your Philadelphia roots, huh? Philadelphia. And it was like, you just don't talk to strangers. So, (laughs) well, that's great. I loved Austin. Well, that's great. I'm glad we're all glad you came to Austin. But um, I wanted to ask you, was your grandfather 
uh, a first generation to the United States and he, he kind of brought his baking skills from Europe? From Frankfurt, Germany, yes. I think he came in 1893, so not born here, born in Frankfurt. And then my father's generation would have been the first generation. He had uh, seven children by two wives. The first one uh, died. So we had lots of uh, lots of cousins and uh, events, family, uh, family only events with number 40 something. <laughs> and uh, so it was a, it was a great way to grow up. We, we had a, a you know, we loved Philly and Philly was not the food scene, however, that it is today. We had lots of good home cooking. So <laughs> bakeries were outstanding, actually. How did you so. get from Austin to <laughs> Austria? Okay, so in uh, I met, uh, well, my teacher was Joseph Slate, and I was going to go to graduate school after finishing uh, my last few credits here that I transferred to uh, to Penn. I was going to go to graduate school in uh, Comp Lit. And Joe said, uh, don't leave. I'm in love with you. So we, we got married and he got a Fulbright to Vienna. So uh, just months after, gosh, less than a full month after getting married, we took off for uh, Austria, where he taught for a year. And of course, my job, uh, besides picking up a little German, was to go around and try out all the bakeries. And it's a nasty job, but somebody had to do it. So, <laughs> oh, I, that sounds tasty. I, well, they, uh, Viennese find a way to have pastry about four times a day. So, um, you know, I had to follow the local customs and, and, uh, Try out all the bakeries. I'm I'm sure I lost count after thirty or forty, but mm. um, they also had insanely good coffee. I was going to ask that, and I'm I'm guessing it was espresso mainly. Yes, and uh, they had uh, names for everything. You know, uh, the coffee itself, how many uh, Mitschlag, how many and Einspener, and you know, it would just. <laughs> on and on and on you got a coffee menu when you walked into a coffee place now my memory if my memory serves and I don't know about today but there were coffee shops and there were bakeries and so when I started Swedish Hill I thought gee and Philadelphia was the same way there were coffee shops and there were bakeries and I said well why can't you serve coffee in a bakery we were the first I'm aware of uh, certainly in Austin, that we didn't have any seating, but we had a meal of pastries and coffee. One of my favorite pictures, Jane, and you have to help me find it, is a, a, a bunch of very well-dressed for work businessmen sitting on the steps leading up to the next level behind Swedish Hill Bakery with their newspapers open and their cup of Swedish Hill coffee next to them took the picture and blew it up and I I think one of my partners um, probably is in possession of that you know as far as I know uh, there were not many places where you could go get a pastry and a cup of coffee now it's almost yeah. standard I mean you go well, into any kind of coffee you know, shop and it's expected yeah. that they would have a pastry right yes it's it's uh, right and and this by the same token it, it, I believe in Philadelphia I'm not sure I haven't been shopping there in a while I believe in Philadelphia, you can get coffee in a bakery and bake goods in a coffee shop. A tra trailblazer you were. You know, Patricia, the, the time that you were in Vienna, you, you ended up meeting your business partner and right. you met Tom. Well, he was How the, did you meet him? He was my, uh, one of my girlfriends from Austin and so I barely knew her, but we became good friends, Cecile. And uh, she said um, at one point when I was planning to go to Vienna, Joe and I were, she said, well, I have a boyfriend just graduated from Oberlin. He's been to, uh, speaks French, speaks German, and would like to work for the summer in a Viennese bakery. Could you help him make the contact? 
So I uh, walked around uh, Vienna in one of the many bakeries I had frequented and, you know, handed them Tom's letter of introduction and he got a summer job in Vienna. He came over and the very first thing we did was cook, of course, we went, Tom having had a lot more experience than I did, the first thing we did was go to the Flesh Detail, which is the uh, meat market. And one of the things Tom bought that day was um, a pint of blood. <laughs> he was going to incorporate it into the, the, the meal, into the sausages. So um, I had to get over um, a lot of my timidity about the uh, you know, going to the meat market was not like going to the farmer's market with lots of pretty vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's actually kind of interesting because I know with the, um, what, what are they called? Beyond beef now that, that the yeah. thing that, that makes it not as tasty is that it doesn't have the blood base in right. it. And, and you don't right. get that if you have something that's uh, simulated like that or something that's not real beef. So that, that's interesting. Even back then. So, so that was when you came back from Vienna and then you started the Swedish Hill pretty quickly after that? Well, we just realized, I realized Tom, of course, was still, I don't know whether, I can't remember where he went. I think he was, uh, took a job somewhere, but he, uh, we kept in touch and, and I said, you know what, Tom, Austin has nothing. <laughs> you know, there is no good bread here. There is no good pastry. I think actually at the time, maybe right about the same time that we opened Swedish Hill, uh, I think Tom Thumb was, I think, was a grocery store out north that made baguette. And that was it. That was it in Austin. And um, when we were looking for equipment in the early days, um, I remember um, going to a bakery that was uh, closing. The husband had died. The wife said that this isn't a lot of fun. So uh, she was just selling everything in the place and just put stickers on stuff. And Tom and I went over to look and see what she had. Everything was in these giant, you know, 50 gallon jars, tubs, canisters, whatever. And it was and she said, oh, you need to try this, this uh, cake. You know, you just take this powder here and add water and pour it into the mold and you got yourself a pretty good wedding cake. <laughs> so anyway, it was uh, that was what did for bakeries. And we were really glad that what we were bringing to Austin was something different, you know, a scratch bakery where we would know all the ingredients. We uh, ordered the best flour we could get. We were getting Def Smith flour. We were getting... Uh, European chocolate uh, butter, and I think, I think we got Falfurious for a while, and then we <laughs> moved on in butter. But um, as anyway, I recall, the butter was in sixty-pound blocks. Yes, and I remember my customers used to say, "Where, where can we buy that butter?" And I said, "You got a big fridge." <laughs> all right well we need to take just a little break if you're just joining us you're listening to koop hd1 hd3 hornsby austin and we are the austin common radio hour john hoffner and jane pulaski here your hosts and we have the wonderful opportunity to have uh, patricia bauer slate the founder of swedish hill bakery in the studio with us and we are talking about the beginning of it all the way up to today uh, so I, I wanted to ask you, um, Patricia, you, how do you start something? I mean, I, I've heard a story about something like Ben and Jerry's where you just like yeah. you open up and you say, oh, I hope people show up. Did, did you do marketing back then or did you walk down the street and grab people and say, come into my bakery and try the best thing in the world? Or, you know, how do you market and get started? I, guess I you know, I don't even think the word marketing occurred to me. You know, when people tell me, oh, you know, you're famous, you have all these stories written about you, I say, well, you know, I haven't done anything that a whole lot of other people haven't done uh, in with their careers. I just do it with food, and that attracts a lot of attention. <laughs> so we 
really from the beginning, anybody you talked to wanted to know where it is. The only marketing I remember doing, and we only did it once, the Sunday brunch, we put flyers on cars in parking lots at UT. <laughs> that, and that was, that was our marketing. We would have people come into the bakery, stand and look at that bakery case with, yeah, maybe at the time we wound up with over, well over 80 products baked fresh daily. Um, at the time, we probably had at least 30. And people would come in and they'd say, oh, I'll take one of those. I'll take two of those. I'll take, uh, can you give me a half a dozen of those? And then they wound up saying, oh, make it at least one of everything. And and, uh, <laughs> and then they'd look at a little shamefaced because, you know, they think I was looking at, oh, my God, how can one person eat that much? And, of course, I was thrilled to sell it to them. And And... I'm telling you, at least half a dozen people said, oh, I have a sick friend <laughs> <laughs> Right, <yeah. laughs> going around Austin. And so people bought stuff and people came back. The first Sunday brunch we had, and I don't think it was because of those flyers on the cars, we had lines out the door when we opened. Talk about pen up demand. People were, were ready, you know, mm -hmm. for this. Yeah. Interesting because it really is before Austin came. Like you said, there was nothing back then. And now Austin is a foodie known for right. its foodie and music. And, you know, it, it might be a little bit more difficult to, to break into. In fact, I'm sure it is now in Austin. But if you're the first and the best, you know. Yeah, I uh, my partner's father used to say things like uh, just w when we were getting a little too full of ourselves, he'd say, never mistake timing for intelligence. <laughs> so it was an intelligent move is what it really was yeah it was an intelligent timely move and well I had gone to Europe and so I knew things were better somewhere else I had lived in Philly which was had a pretty European base certainly in its bakeries and um, you know and I came to Austin and it was really a bit of a desert you know there my husband and I tried to find a wedding cake and we wound up getting one of these, uh, you know, prefab mixed things with uh, Mi Vida, Mi Corazon written on top. And um, and that was it. You know, and I said, you I, I had been on the phone uh, for days looking for a good wedding cake. And this was it. So that's another one of the things that uh, convinced me to call Tom and say, get down here. <laughs> People need your help. Well, that's that, you know, as I like to say proudly, that my professional claim to fame was being Swedish Hill's first employee. And at the time, none of us had any formal experience in baking other than just a devout love for the practice. So, right. so uh, yeah, Tom and Patricia just taught me everything. And I'm, I'm curious how other folks found Swedish Shill to come and work for you who were probably not trained either. Well, we had virtually no hope of, of uh, writing the uh, ad in the paper that said experienced bakers only need apply. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, forget that. But we did put something out there and I can't even remember if it was word of mouth or an ad or, um, but this, you, you remember, Jane, because you were talking about this story. This uh, tall, thin gentleman walked into the place at three in the morning. Always a good sign, right? You're in a bakery. You work overnight. This guy looking for a job at three in the morning. And sure enough, he was somebody who had baked bread at Schlotsky's. So mm -hmm. that was, you know, the old, uh, the old day where they made it all, you know, from scratch. And I said, so... He was the closest to a trained baker. He was a darling man, and uh, Chaz Roland, and he stayed for many years. He is now an architect in Albuquerque, but we worked together for a long time, and he was, uh, for a period of time, also a partner uh, of the bakery. So, um, you know, that's we found one baker, and pretty much <laughs> everybody else walked in the door and said, I'd like to learn how to bake. Great. You must have had a lot of patience to really train people. I mean, it takes a while for them to learn and do it right. And and well, obviously we, you had some love for, for training as well. 
we were still learning ourselves, you know. Uh, in fact, we did not get it right, uh, right away. We, we, uh, that was one of the reasons that when we met Jane, uh, after Jane reminds me that she called me up because someone and Jane said, I'm looking for a job. And one of her friends uh, said, oh, I know someone who's opening a bakery. Jane called us up and Jane, you, you say, we talked two hours straight. And I have no doubt because we have been talking nonstop since. So we said, come to work for us. What we were doing is we were borrowing the kitchen of a restaurant called the Polonaise which I'm not going to mention that Jane referred to as the mayonnaise. She had names for everything. <laughs> we took our equipment and our ingredients into the building after they left around 11 at night, went up, I don't know, 23 floors, unloaded all our ingredients and our cooking equipment, went into the kitchen, cleaned the kitchen first because they had just done dinner service and, uh, and then uh, baked all night. And then around six in the morning, we went, took all of our ingredients and all of our equipment down the elevator. And that's how we practiced. So uh, Tom was the only experienced baker. He had worked in France uh, for, I guess, about a year. And, um, and he was, uh, you know, a natural. He was uh, a, uh, a chemistry uh, student. And I think that's what his degree was at Oberlin. We, we were training ourselves and we were, uh, but Tom, uh, you know, I think Tom was a natural teacher and I became one, but uh, Tom was a, a really good, a really wonderful teacher. And he's, he's still doing a lot of that. And, uh, and he actually became a college professor at one point at um, uh, both at um, Cornell and uh, San Luis Obispo. He did follow a, a career of teaching as well as entrepreneuring. You know, Patricia, the memories are vast. I know that you have just come off a very successful charitable book signing, proceeds of which are going to Tom's Project Hope and Fairness. So let's talk a little bit about the cookbook. Okay. Well, um, I met uh, Mimi Sheridan, who was the, uh, uh, the restaurant reviewer of the New York Times at the time. And she was coming to Austin. My sister worked at Texas Monthly. And my sister said, we're getting this famous food person down uh, from New York. And she wants to taste chicken fried steak, of all things. Uh, but I want you to come along as a, as a fellow foodie so that you can talk to her about, about food. And, and uh, so I said, sure. And, um, you know, Mimi and I, hit it off you know we uh, she is a gosh god bless her in her 90s she's still an amazing person in fact she has a a podcast and um so we uh went out to eat that night to the stallion anybody remember the stallion and uh she ordered her chicken fried steak because that was what her article was supposed to be. But the two of us sat there talking and realized that we had, um, that our favorite restaurant in the world was the same restaurant in Strasbourg, France. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was amazing when we got to that moment. And, uh, so I guess we knew we'd be friends for life. Well, on into the, uh, and she, by the way, pointed out things like, Oh my gosh, your quiche is almost orange. Those are farm eggs and, you know, things like that. But she noticed everything. So um, down the, you know, down the road a bit, she said, Patricia, you know what? It's 20 years now. You really need to be putting out, you know, a cookbook. And uh, I said, I'm not, a, you know, I don't, where am I going to find the time? I was already working about 90 hours a week. I had a small daughter. I said, I, I, I don't know how I can find. She said, I'm coming to Austin in January and I want to see a chapter. I want, you, <laughs> I, want sure. you to, I want you to have something written. So I wrote something that I thought was pretty good. And I, of course, it took my uh, tiny Christmas vacation to do it. I didn't have any time off. And uh, so I was working on the cookbook whenever I was not working at Swedish Show. And Mimi comes into town and I proudly turn over this uh, 
you know, my a chapter to see. And she takes about five minutes and looks at it. She says, well, you're not a writer, but uh, I, I think you should still do, you know, some kind of a, a cookbook with uh, stories. And um, so what we did, we uh, at, at Mimi's behest, and by the way, she said she would, um, you know, introduce me to the world in one of her national magazines. I think we had one piece in Money Magazine and then another one in so Woman's something. Anyway, kind of female magazine. And the only thing I can remember is the first time I looked at it is there was a, a, a big article on, uh, a, not an article, a big ad for uh, sex toys or something on that and I had a 13 year old daughter and I said how am I going to show her this article <laughs> anyway the things you think about um mm. anyway Mimi was the reason that uh that I wrote the the mm -hmm. cook and um I didn't have I I my sister uh was a, an editor um at Texas Monthly, and so she edited. My husband was an artist as well as an English professor, so he did all the uh, sketches. And I had um, a great marketing team of Hixo um, that mm. uh, did the design of the book, and um, and mm. it was twenty recipes in uh, for twenty years. Wow! And so, what year was that published? No, nineteen eighty-five. Okay, and all you right. had forgotten about <laughs> <laughs> all right we need to take a quick break and we'll be back you're listening to the austin common radio hour here on co-op radio hd1 hd3 hornsby john hofter your host and with my other host uh, jane pulaski and our special guest today is patricia bauer slate she is the founder of the icon in austin the first real foodie in town uh, swedish hill bakery we'll be back Welcome back to a pre-recorded episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour here on Co-op HD1 HD3 Hornsby. I'm your host John Hofter with my co-host Jane Pulaski in the studio and we have a special guest today. We have Patricia Bauer Slate. She is the founder of the Swedish Hill Bakery and an author and a trainer of other bakers. We're learning a lot about uh, Swedish Hill and uh, Patricia today. And uh, Jane Pulaski had some more questions for you. Hey, yeah, Dick. Patricia. Yeah, I know that you just sold books, the, the first and limited edition of the Swedish Hill Cookbook, 20 Recipes for 20 Years, the proceeds of which support uh, Tom Newhouse's Project Hope and Fairness in Africa. And those books went like, pardon the pun, hotcakes. So what now? Is there plans in the work for the sequel? Well, I did mention to Addie Broyles, who wrote the article for the Statesman, uh, that we were, you know, that we might collect some recipes and do another cookbook. So on uh, May 12th, when the article came out, across the top of the newspaper, was a picture of Jane and me, because that, by the way, was the hook to get Addie. She loved the idea that I was still friends with my first employee. And then of course she loved Jane even, you know, that, that synced the deal for me. And uh, so the picture of Jane and I uh, was uh, across the top of the newspaper with the announcement that there would be a second cookbook. So huh. my sister, the one who had edited the first cookbook said, well, I guess you're writing another cookbook. The paper says it at the top of the front page. And so I said, yeah, I guess we're writing another cookbook. So um, it had always been my idea that, you know, to get some, you know, to have another coda, a little closure on what happened because the first cookbook does mention other people, customers and employees, but I wanted the second cookbook to really talk more about the stories that, uh, in my opinion, uh, 
recipes, recipes are great, but recipes, um, everybody can get a hold, you know, everybody's got the internet these days. Everybody can get a hold of 20 recipes to make anything. So to me, the, the story of Swedish Hill that was still untold was all the people who made it happen. Uh, the customers and, and of course the employees. And um, so I thought that this cookbook would be chosen more or less the recipes, the content would be chosen by customer favorites. And in fact, one of my employees, my current employees at Patricia's Lunchbox, uh, Dana Homick, uh, who had been the, the deli chef uh, for many, 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 many years. And we stayed friends and she moved over to my other business with me. And uh, she, I said, I don't know what to call it. I don't know what the focus is going to be. It seems like it's some deli savory stuff and some baked goods, and it doesn't have quite the focus of the first one. And she said, why not call it 40 fan favorites? And so that is our working title for the second cookbook. And um, and I, I want it to be fans. I want, in fact, I got an email this morning, Jane. Uh, you'll get a CC on the answer. And uh, it's a woman saying, oh my gosh, I forgot to tell you what my story about my favorite Swedish show, uh, things that I would like you to put in the second cookbook. And I said, oh, there's plenty of time. This cookbook is going to be written with a view to what customers stories are. So you have a good story. I guarantee you your recipe will wind up in this cookbook. So we have not hard to find 40 things that, that people like, but we're really looking for uh, what the customers like, how it played into their family gatherings. You know, a lot of cakes, of course, you can imagine. And, uh, and the, the catering that we did. So, um, we're going to start writing this cookbook, but we're going to, if a good story comes along when we're almost done, the good <laughs> story is going to get into the cookbook. So I want to know, you know, I, I want to, I want employees to tell their, you know, still close to a lot of them. Um, and so I want them to tell their stories. Jane has a million. <laughs> you, have any, you have any favorite stories, Jane? Yeah, let's hear one. Up, yeah, I got a, a lot of favorite stories, but um, I wanted to at least just ask you how, I mean, the, the fun now, I think, for, for volume two for the sequel is converting recipes from commercial kitchens right. to the home kitchen. I mean, you've got more flexibility as just in, in a kitchen, but baking is so specific. You can't just, you can't just right. say, well, I, I can use less here. It is so specific. Yeah, there's a lot of chemistry involved in the baking. You can't take a recipe for 40 cakes and uh, divide it by 40. So um, my um, my partner at the time I left in 2008, uh, uh, Jim Murphy, ran it for uh, the business for another 10 years before he sold. And uh, I said, Jim, I walked off without a recipe recipe for chocolate cake and everybody I know wants me to make a chocolate cake for their husband's whatever anniversary kid's birthday and I said I have some good chocolate cake recipes but I don't have Swedish Hills chocolate cake recipe so he sends me a recipe for as I said like 40 or 50 cake and I said thanks a lot Jim <laughs> because now I had to cut it down to I think I started with like eight and then four, and then I did two and one cakes multiple times before I got a recipe that I think is pretty darn good and is close, but not an exact, uh, as, as Jane says, you, you can't take a, the bakery, the ingredients that we use, the equipment that we had and uh, give you an exact recipe, but we're going to, we're going to kitchen test the heck out of them. And all of us have good food memories. So we're going to eat them. You know, <laughs> chucks and maybe you'll get in on some of that don and uh, yeah i'd love to well yeah. hey, here's yeah, a question for you if we're talking about recipes so I, I picture maybe you as the main baker do you have next to you a piece of paper or something written out that has the uh, equation or do you do it all by memory now or did you uh, back then you can you you want a recipe for baked goods 
because that that you know as i said that's got more chemistry going on you know a soup you know you know i'm i'm gonna tell you what i i actually i'm we're gonna include two of the soups that i actually uh quote unquote invented back in the day when everything uh you know you couldn't get 30 recipes off the internet for everything but i made the soup up and i made the names up and i did all of that and so we'll include that and i actually have a very clear memory of what goes into those soups but i also have people like dana and jane and peggy mcclure in seattle who was an outstanding uh cook came to me at like 19 years of age and uh was a, a complete natural anytime mm. i showed her anything she could make it so i have people like that monica is going to do my um some of my cake baking and decorating uh, arlene uh the same so i we have a lot of people who who went through many years of of making and eating this food the um the deli items, the savory items, I'm not so uh, concerned about. We will try to get as close as possible to the recipes for the baked goods. Yeah, and, that's, well, that's the main, the mainstay of it. Yeah. That's in the name. Yes. Well, Jane, yes. we're going to put you on the spot and tell you, you need to tell a story now. A funny yes, story. Oh, that, man. Which oh, one, man? Jim? How about oh. your, short, your shortened version of Ratatouille and Pisoladier that made it onto the uh, the outside of the container, the storage container, when the health department came. But uh... <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, as Patricia said, I was fond of renaming things. So ratatouille is this eggplant, this lovely eggplant dish, with tomatoes, and and the pisoladier is a tomato, like a it's just a tom- like a tomato, a topping, fancy tomato, tomato sauce, yeah. a topping. Yeah. yeah, and so we would always, you know, put things in la- in big containers and label them and put them in the fridge. So of course I labeled it rat and piss and our favorite health inspector came and looked in the refrigerator and said, Hmm, interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think those were his words. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm being charitable for sure. (laughs) uh, And it passed, I guess. And it, yeah. um, But but Patricia, um, so I know we're working on, volume two of the cookbook which is great um and and so you know the testing you know kitchen testing is is really the fun part i think right so and i know we're we're sort of pushing that the rest of the year but i know i want you to talk briefly about what you did or what you're doing since you left swedish hill okay well um I actually left uh, in 2008. Um, I was, I think retail uh, wore me out. Although, ha ha, I didn't know what I was getting into next. But um, Kitty Kreider, again, at the Statesman, when I was leaving Swedish Hill in January of 2008, put out a fabulous article on my new business, Patricia's Lunchbox. Uh, which was serving good food to uh, school children. And um, I really, really, really did not respect that this was an entirely different business. It was only barely related uh, by the concept of feeding people to the retail business. And I had a lot to learn. But Kitty's article had the phones ringing off the hook and uh, some very large well-known schools in Austin called up and said, please, please, please cook for our kids. Uh, So we started doing that. I think the first full year of Patricia's lunchbox, we were cooking for 900 kids a day in seven kitchens. Mm -hmm. Now scaling from zero to 900 in less than a year and being in seven different places at the same time was a, you know, a bit of a challenge to say the least. I found some fabulous people to work with me, but I had never in Swedish Hill tried to hire more than a handful of people. You might need a baker and a deli cook and a clerk all at the same time, but I needed to hire um, 15 people I didn't know um, anything about, and I needed to do it within a month or two. 
So that, that, that was just one of the many, many challenges of the early days of uh, Patricia's Lunchbox. Um, but we're still, we're still here today, even after COVID, uh, thanks to the wonderful school where we cook, St. Martin's Lutheran, and the wonderful people there who love our food and have been eating it, uh, well, since 2008. And uh, so, uh, you know, we're still doing that. So what we did during COVID and I know many, many, many people in the food business have had to pivot. And we tried some takeout, which we're still doing. And so my goal in the future is when we go back into the schools, either with uh, box lunches, which is what some people are doing because they don't really want to have, you know, um, kitchen cafeteria experience. The kids are still eating separately and uh, especially the little kids uh, who have not yet been vaccinated. So we're going to start, we're going to start that we're going to have takeout. And we also sell some food um, in Fredericksburg to the wineries. So mm -hmm. we're just uh, also considering getting a food trailer and driving it around to the schools so people can just, uh, you know, they don't have to pre-order pay by the semester. They just come up and buy with the money in their pockets. So oh, how uh, fun. That's yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. And as I tell my employees, um, get ready to take over. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> well, that's great. So here's a question about your lunches for children. Are you allowed to sneak some cookies or pieces of cake, or do you have to have an apple and a, and a banana each time? Well, it's not have to, because one of my goals really from the beginning was to just have kids eat better. And yes. so the very first school that we did, we actually went out, we brought the food cooked and we'd serve it um, from a line and um, and we'd put out a roll and we'd put out a little cookie, you know, several days a week at least. Mm -hmm. And I noticed very, very, very quickly that a lot of the kids, and these are probably not your best eaters, are eating the bread. They're eating the dessert. They're not eating the broccoli. They're not eating the even the protein or the starch. Mm. And some of them then would borrow or steal or whatever their friends roll. They'd come back and ask for a second roll. And I decided we're not going to do this. Mm. We're not going to, you know, we're there. You know, I wanted to try to change some of the habits and I definitely wanted these kids to have a really healthy lunch. So mm. we uh, stopped doing rolls the rolls were so popular and um and people just ate them instead so we do we do have some bread we do have some sliders and burgers and pizza and and tacos and things like that which have a, a bread component but um that was that is not the focus and mm. up until now there has been no dessert for many years Although now what we're going to do is we're going to, since we're making some really good things like uh, banana bread and, and uh, carrot bread and, and squares and things like that, we're going to introduce a dessert of week. And I'm thinking of introducing it on an unknown day. So <laughs> Sneak uh, day. You know, today you get a, you know, gluten-free and we do gluten-free. Oh, we yeah. Do yeah, we take care of special needs, gluten-free, vegetarian, vegans, um, people who don't eat uh, pork. Uh, so you can you can order from a menu that, you know, that feels safe for you. We are also uh, nut-free, not just peanut-free. We had a very serious peanut allergy in our first school. And, um, and I just... I read up on it and I said, yeah, no nuts of any kind, which is, which is hard. And, you know, when you're trying to put together, say a trail mix or something, but yeah. we, we, we do fine. We find enough protein and enough other things that we can, we can uh, keep this, the kids safe. Well, that's good. And health safe yeah. and healthy. And that is important. And I, I know when my kids were little, I would go to their lunchroom. I was just shocked because they'd all go through the line with their, their tray and they'd take yeah. everything or they'd give them everything without a, a choice yes. and they would right. go right to the dessert and then they, right. exactly. they, the good food was into the trash and so yeah our daughter right. actually when she became a teacher started a whole program of composting and and doing the right trying to get them to eat uh, properly it's it's hard but uh, I'm, I'm glad it you're is. focused on that well my my daughter came home in like Bridget 
came home in like third grade or something. And she said, mom, we're learning about food in school. We're learning nutrition. And I said, that's great. What did you learn? And she'd tell me some things. And then she said, why don't, why don't they serve the kind of food they talk about in the classroom? Why is, why is the food, you know, full of sugar and, and this and that? And I said, you know, that's one of the reasons I would like to cook for school kids because, uh, you know, they're getting one message in the classroom and, and rather than seeing the cafeteria as an extension of the classroom, they are getting a completely separate message there. So, um, anyway, so we do offer, we do believe in sweets and, and we love sweets, but, uh, we, we just want to make the other food look so darn good that, you know, that's what they eat first. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. Well, sweets and food is love and gets people conversation and it has so much importance of our society well um we're getting close to the top of the hour patricia and uh maybe a couple more minutes and uh what would they'll they'll also ask you of how they would get in touch with you go ahead okay well i was yeah let me just interrupt and say that folks can stay up to date with the second volume of the Swedish Hill Cookbook on the Facebook page and that Swedish Hill Cookbook. So jump on there, uh, join the conversation, engage. And then for Patricia's Lunchbox, uh, we have just go to Patricia's Lunchbox, go to the website, click on takeout if you wanna try some of the food. And um, we're going to, we deliver or two days a week you can pick up from, uh, outside St. Martin's and we'll bring it out to you. Uh, so yeah, we, we enjoy this takeout and we would like to make the takeout part of the new Patricia's lunchbox, uh, lunch program so that parents can order what their kids enjoy at school and order it for home. Mm. And that way you've got another nice meal on the weekend. Mom and dad are going to a movie tonight, but your favorite babysitter and your favorite lunch is, is what's for dinner so um so we're gonna we're gonna keep on doing that and keep on working through this uh you know the there's a lot of rebuilding to happen after the pandemic and uh we're willing to try everything we have a bunch of fabulous cooks that are so good at what they do and so we're just gonna we're gonna keep going until they tell us to stop fantastic well uh, patricia when when do you think your book will be published well, I, I really, I have right now like seven former employees offering to kitchen test. And I think that will go very smoothly over the summer. And then we'll all taste each other's uh, to make sure that we're on target. And then the writing, um, I'm going to guess I can have a lot of it done by the end of the year. Um, and then, you know, God willing into the uh, late this year, early next. I'm Great. thinking the yeah. Well, everybody will need to keep tabs on that. And maybe we'll have you back at that time to uh, tell us some of those wonderful stories that you get between now and oh, then about yes. your past so uh, employees. Well, thank yeah. you so much for having a chance to talk about my favorite subject, which is my, my love of food, my sharing of food, my building of community with food. And it's happening again late in my life when I didn't really expect it. I thought I would just fade away. And now all of a sudden, um, this community is still there. And, um, and, and I, I love it. It's been a very important part of my life. What an incredible journey. Thank you so much for joining us, Patricia Bauer Slate. She's the founder of Swedish Hill Bakery. That's it for today. I'm your host, John Hoffner, with my co-host, Jane Pulaski. And you're listening to Co-op. And it is the Austin Common Radio Hour. You can get podcasts of our show at kop.org and at austincommon.com. Thanks for listening. It's not far. I can walk down the block to table talk. Close my eyes. Cap on my hair, I used to mind. Now I don't.
And that's our show for today. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansberry, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And a final thank you to the Tiara Girls, the amazing local band whose music you hear at the start and end of this podcast. You can listen to their music on Spotify or follow them on Instagram at Tiara Girl Band with two R's. Uh, that's at Tiara Girl Band. All right, that's our show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>